0: Yeah, so the purpose of meeting today, we, uh, like I said, we did theology, the first part of theology one, beginning of the year, covered bibliology, theology proper, and that kind of thing. Um, now we're jumping into Christology, or oh, we already jumped into it, what, what month was it? I don't remember, it's been, it's been probably three or four months. Three or four months, it's, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so now we're jumping right back in. So basically to review today, and kind of refocus and get a, the new motivation to study Christology, which really has become one of my favorite subjects. The more I get into it, it's an awesome subject. Have you ever taught anything on Christology? I'm sure you have. Right. Maybe not a full class on it, but you've taught, you've hit points, but yeah, it's a great subject. It's becoming more and more one of my favorites. Um, yes. Yeah, so today we'll do a lot of review. So stuff you've already been here, it'll be stuff you've already heard, most likely. Uh, but what is Christology? I can't ask a question unless it's on the board. All right? What is Christology? Yep. Shane expanded on it already. Study of the person and work of Christ. So what do we mean by the person as opposed to his work? Who he is and where he came from? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so who he is and what he's done. That's basically the study of Christology, his person and work. Can you divide those up? No, you really can't divide his person from his work. We're going to for study purposes, so we can do it in an early fashion, but they're bound up together. So why study Christology? We answered this question a couple months ago, or several months ago, but why is it good to study Christology? So you better get to know him? <laughs> yeah, you're going to be conformed to his image. And you're called to be conformed to his image. Great answer, yeah. One, one important thing is it guards us from reinventing heresies of the past. Because some of them can be subtle, can't they? And they might not seem like a big deal at first. But when you get to the bottom of it, they are. And we'll, so we'll cover some of those things later on in the outline and show how they have a contemporary significance. Um, it can help us avoid, avoid deception. Um, uh, if you've been in the Hebrews discussion, Christ is our superior messenger. He's our superior mediator. And drifting away from that message is a, puts you in a very dangerous spot. So paying close attention to that message, the message of the gospel, extremely important. Um, it shows how Christ is qualified to be our sympathetic high priest. That's huge. And, again, see, who's in Hebrews on Thursday night? I think just Darren Windale. Yes, yeah, so we've hit that every single week. Same theme every single week about him being the superior mediator. Um, Based on 12.3, 12, uh, 12, book of Hebrews, to consider who so we won't grow weary and lose heart. Who are we considering? Considering Christ. So it gives us help, and encouragement when we're in time of, uh, of, of trials, times of weariness. And uh, I've heard some people say, why not study the personal work of Christ? Why not study Christology? There is no compelling reason not to. You have every compelling reason to do it. So this is one, some of the reasons why we are studying this. Paul said, I determined to know nothing among you except what? christ and him crucified so that's what we're here to do at this church no nothing except christ and Him crucified so where have we been in our studies Anybody remember where, where we covered how much we covered i knew i couldn't just drop right back in the outline and say yep remember all that let's go <laughs> um here's this is where uh, we've been and also where we're going so we've started section one the person of christ and we just did some introductory things talking about how this is more of a systematic theology course and less of a verse by verse course Yeah, it makes sense. So, which one's better? <laughs> yeah, both are important, aren't they? Both are very important. We do both at this church, don't we? We do surveys of the whole Bible, right? Then we do verse-by-verse studies. Sometimes it's preaching, sometimes it's discussions, and then sometimes it's putting it all together into a systematic package. So, the thing to remember when you have a systematic package is it might not be a perfect package, but it'll just be a way to transport that truth so we can understand it, right? So. So I say that because we might get to a verse of scripture, and that verse might apply to a different doctrine, right? But it also might have an implication for the doctrine of Christology. So this just a systematic course. Yeah, so we've started the person of Christ, and eventually we'll get to the work of Christ. But right now, we just really got to the deity of Christ. And under the deity of Christ, we just started the biblical teaching about it, okay? And we'll review that. So that's where we've been. And, yeah, so we covered really all these things. The definition of the deity of Christ, the importance of it, and the biblical teaching. And this is where we're going. We will get to the Trinitarian applications, historical attacks, attestations, and then how it can interact in contemporary apologetics. That's where we're going, but we're still we're at, right now we're at number, where is it? Three, okay, with the laser pointer. And then application. All right. So, what is the deity of Christ? Is it important to spell it, D-E-I instead of D-I-E-T? Not talking about diet. The deity of Christ. What is the deity of Christ? Him being God. Yeah. Jesus is fully God. Again, okay. We're doing review, so these are easy questions. But just want to get to where we are. Uh, get back to where we were in the outline. Okay, so now it's going to get a little bit more deeper here. Can we, prove, can we prove the deity of Christ? Can we prove that he is God? Can we prove that Jesus is God to other people? Yes, no, and why? Of course, it's a trick question. But. <laughs> no, we can't. The Bible can. We can. Right. Yeah, first, my first question is intellectually. Can we prove to someone on the street or on the USF campus that Jesus is God? Can we prove it? And what's preventing them from accepting it? Who's that? Heart change. So how do we prove it? That would be the next question we could ask. From the Bible. OK, is the Bible internally consistent? Yes. Extremely internally consistent. Have you ever got to another system of of religious thought or or whatever and found that okay it's got some compelling things going on but this is really inconsistent with that? Have you seen those things before? Seen that in plenty of other religions. But is that the case with the Bible? No, it's internally consistent. So, but what about, uh, is there any archaeological evidence for the deity of Christ? Empty grave? Okay, does that prove he's God? So, is that is archaeological evidence clear? Is it clear enough to prove the deity of Christ? Okay, yeah, because the archaeology could be written documents that have been discovered, right? Or physical objects, um, inscriptions, those kind of things. I'd say it could be clear, but it's still, by itself, insufficient. Yeah, Oh, uh, really, yeah. Was Jesus a common name back then, Yeshua? Yeah, still is, and it's more apparent in Latin cultures than Jesus. But yeah, uh, Joshua today, a lot of Joshua's around here today. Okay, what about the testimony of church history? There's a lot of people from the very beginning of the church and its history, the, the church fathers all throughout through today, plenty of people who have affirmed the deity of christ and argued for the deity of christ well is that sufficient to prove to the guy at usf campus that jesus really is god it's clear right they present clear arguments but is it sufficient let's say it's insufficient so what we're getting at is we have to go to the bible you have to go to the scriptures to talk about the deity of christ that's that's where we go it's really our first place we go and it's the last place we go okay we go to the scriptures And uh, we talked about that, about how we go to the scriptures in systematic theology. Uh, We read from Culver a statement that you have in your notes whenever you get them. It says, We have to limit the discussion to what is necessary clearly to tie Christology and its every aspect to Scripture. So we're tying all this back to Scripture. That's the ultimate goal. And that's where we have to go. So with this question, we'll go to the next one. How does the Bible present the deity of Christ? Left it kind of ambiguous, but how does the Bible present? present the truth of the deity of Christ? Okay. So explain that a little bit more. Okay. So you see something that he did and say, wow, that's not just any ordinary man. Sure, that's a good point. How else does the Bible present it? Prophecy. Um, So things happening many years beforehand, or events prophesied, then been clearly fulfilled and well-established, you know, in their fulfillment. And the word? And what do you mean by that? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so these things that he said, statements that he said. Either had to come from someone who was God or someone who was claiming at least to be God. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Wendell? Is eternality? And again, where do you learn about his eternality? In the word. So you go back to the word every time. And that's where that has to be our battleground. That has to be where we go. Right, Miss Alice? God's Word every single time. That's the only way we're going to, uh, to really understand it ourselves. That's the only place we can go to teach it. So on the one hand, just talking about how the Bible presents this teaching of the deity of Christ. On the one hand, Christ's deity is not merely an implicit doctrine, implicit doctrine what do I mean by implicit doctrine it's implied okay so what's an example of implied doctrine can anyone think of an example the trinity okay explain what you mean by that Yeah, so the word Trinity, that's, that, that's one of the biggest things. The word Trinity is not in the Scripture, right? But everything um, everything behind it is there. Like Mike mentioned this morning, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all being mentioned functionally, um, doing different things, but co-eternal, they're co-equal, and all deserve the honor and praise that God deserves. Um, but then we say the word Trinity. They say, that word's not in the Bible. We say, well, we're trying to summarize things. Okay, so are there different levels of implicit doctrine in Scripture? The Trinity is is something that no genuine Christian can argue against and still be a genuine Christian, right? Are there different levels of implicit doctrine? That's the qu- next question. Like one being very important and one being very unimportant. What would be an example of a less important one? <laughs> okay, that's one way of answering it. Yeah. What's something that we might argue about with other ple- uh, with other believers, people that we do genuinely regard as believers, but Baptism, yeah, that's what I was what I was thinking of. So, with baptism, what would be the argument? Paedo, credo. Yeah, Pato Credo, Pato Credo. <laughs> so, one is you're being baptized upon the profession or the you're, you're the creed, you know, of your faith, you're making profession of faith. In Pedo baptism, you're being baptized as you're born into a believing family. Uh, so, those—that's—that's that's an example of uh, an implicit doctrine. Now, I think it's not explicit for sure. And do I think it's even implicit? No, but there's still some people who do regard it as such. But what I'm getting at is the deity of Christ is not merely an implicit doctrine, is it? It's very clearly taught, very clearly taught. And I'll read you also what Robert, okay, Robert Duncan Culver, he's becoming one of my favorite systematic theologians. He's really, uh, really thorough. But he said this, if you can read the font, he's a clear writer, but the font is literally you will have to get a not just a magnifying glass, but like a, uh, a tele, uh, not telescope, but what's the other thing? Microscope. There you go. <laughs> Unless you're from a really far distance, and then you can get the telescope. You know. <laughs> so, but he said this: the deity of Christ is not an inference derived from cumulative evidence gained by inductive Bible research. So it's not just an inference. Okay. He's saying it's something more than that. Rather, it's derived from statements concerning him in the Bible. The references are so many, and their meaning so plain that Christians of every shade of opinion have always regarded it, its affirmations as an absolute and indispensable requisite of the faith. So something, the deity of Christ is clearly taught in Scripture, plainly taught. And you can't get away from the Bible if you're trying to read it honestly and say, well, I'm not very sure about the whole deity of Christ thing. It doesn't seem to be very clear about that. Kind of ask Bible experts more questions about that to see if Jesus is really God. If you're reading the Bible for what it is, it's going to clearly teach it. But on the other hand, the Bible is not a detailed textbook on the deity of Christ, is it? A detailed textbook. So it's not a systematic theology of the deity of Christ. So Culver also says, this is not talking about the guy who has the chain of restaurants with ice cream and the butter burgers and that kind of thing. Not that Culver's. But this is a theologian. The New Testament nowhere goes out of the way to announce the deity of Christ. Rather, it's usually presented incidentally as something everybody on the inside of the Christian movement already understands. So why, what does that mean, and why is that significant? Yes. So he says the deity of Christ is usually presented as something everybody on the inside of the Christian movement already understands. So if an author is writing, an author of scripture is writing to a group of believers, in a way he's already assuming that those people already understand the deity of Christ, and they, they believe it. So in other words, it's, it is a given in many ways, isn't it? Why is it important to say that? It's fundamental and foundational truth. Amen? Ms. Alice? You can't be a Christian without it. It's, it's a given. give an answer to someone who says, why does the Bible have Ah, uh, yes, yes. Yeah. Like that. Yes, and that's, that's really where I was going with it. So if you, especially if you're talking to an unbeliever. Because really what's at stake when you're talking to an unbeliever is what? It's Christ and this person at work. And you're trying to convince them that you have to have Christ or else you're going to spend an eternity in hell. So this is what's at stake. So there might be saying, well, the Bible never says Jesus is God. Does it ever say that? Does the Bible ever say, quote, Jesus is God? And now let me explain three points to help you understand that. It doesn't say that, does it? It says everything but that, though, doesn't it? It just assumes that it's, a, it's such a plain doctrine that believers know it. Okay? That's where we're getting at that. Also, I say that to, to say this. As we study both the Old Testament and the New Testament on this subject, we'll discover that the deity of Christ is not just some kind of some myth that Jesus' followers made up after he died. Have you ever heard anyone accuse the Bible of that? I've heard it plenty of times. That's growing in its popularity of, of people attacking the Scriptures. They say, okay, I read the Scriptures. I was honest with the Scriptures. And yeah, these guys believed that Jesus was God. But they just made it up. Have you ever heard anyone say that? Yeah, I, I've heard plenty of people. And you'll, you'll start to hear that more and more. Bart Ehrman, you'll, he, that's one of his favorite arguments. Uh, he was one of those guys who grew up in a conservative Christian family Uh, went to Moody Bible College but eventually went to Princeton I believe and became a liberal liberal scholar and now this is his main accusation because he can't get around the fact that the scripture teaches Jesus is God can't get around that so what does he do Says they just made it up therefore this is no longer it's not it's not a divine book that's his argument but the way it's presented it doesn't lead you to that conclusion does it especially looking back into the Old Testament because they're not making it up back then. Like, what about whenever Isaiah prophesies about him being the mighty God, the wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace? Is he just making up some kind of myth because he loved Jesus? I mean, he was hung out with Jesus, so he figures, okay, we'll call him God now. He wasn't even around Jesus in person in the flesh, okay? So th- that's what I'm getting at. The way the Bible presents this doctrine is not just some kind of myth that they could have made up, okay? Steve? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 I will. I'll mention something uh, later in the outline. Not. Not today. But Bart Ehrman goes to that passage and says they made that up. <laughs> so what are you gonna do? You know. Yeah. So it's just. He's just picking and choosing. But he can't get around the clarity of Scripture. He can't get around it. When you read the Bible for what it is, it's very clear about the deity of Christ. So again, I think you all are on the same page with me. So it's a matter of direct revelation from God, this idea of deity of Christ. It's not just an arbitrary conclusion. A few friends of a dead guy made up, okay? It's not what it is. So the main point I'm getting at here, I'll repeat it again, is that anyone reading the Bible honestly has to admit that it clearly teaches the full deity of Christ unbelievers may disagree with that conclusion nevertheless the bible clearly and unequivocally makes that claim we can't get around that so this is where we're going we're going to the scriptures for our knowledge about the deity of Christ so the biblical teaching that's where we were at point 3 earlier what acronym did we use last time if you've been in fundamentals of the faith you should remember this hand or hand yeah hands so Okay, well we'll get it, we'll get it. So, uh, let me see where is it is. Yeah, hands, so there we go, it's on the board. And if you have your outline with you, and whenever you get it, it's 1.3 in the outline, okay? So that's that's what that number means. I'm gonna turn back to where I was here. Okay, yeah. Now, I, that's not my hand. I don't know whose hand that is, but it's there on the board. But what are what's the H-A-N-D-S acronym? I'm getting it from this book. It's a book I recommend, it's layman's, Uh, book on the deity of christ and this that's they based this book on that outline of h-a-n-d-s really helpful way of remembering it because obviously y'all remember it too so now what's the h yeah jesus shares the honors of god and then what's the a yep attributes has anyone heard before okay i know y'all have fof but um and n names deity. The deity is summarizing all of it. Deeds, all right, and S. C. OK, great. So uh, so far in our outline, we covered honors, and we almost finished attru- attributes that very last week. We tried to make that last push, still like three attributes left, and we stopped. So, but what did we get out with honors? Jesus shares the honors of God. What was the main point we had right there? Sure. <laughs> What's that? Okay. Yeah, great. That's that's one of the key verses for that for that point. So the, the the main point of all that is that Jesus deserves the same worship that God the Father deserves. You can't get it those many references, and you have them in your notes whenever you get them again. Um, but Jesus deserves the same worship that God the Father deserves. Showing that Jesus is God. And then attributes. What are we getting at with attributes? Yeah. Not omnipresent in the flesh, but could he do things from afar, like heal a centurion servant? Could do that, yep. Yeah, so you, there's many, many attributes. We covered several, and you could cover many, many more. And then later on we'll cover the names. deep. Actually, next week we'll get into the names. And probably, maybe cover two or three next week, and then because we still got a lot to cover in the whole outline. But the idea, this is a systematic approach. So we're putting a bunch of information together and could you say other things besides the hands? Yeah, you could. But we're just trying to summarize and make it simple to understand. That's where we're going with that. Um, so, yeah, that's where we are right now in the outline. Jesus shares the attributes of God. So, we mentioned a few. David already mentioned and Wendell already mentioned the pre-existence, eternality of Christ. And, and, and Steve mentioned the John 8 reference where before Abraham was, I am. And in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. In John chapter 1. And omnipotence. He's all powerful. Even the wind and seas obey him. He could do anything. He's omniscient, omnipresent. Again, not in his flesh, but we read some references on that, and we have the outline. Immutable. He's unchangeable. He doesn't change. Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, is the same yesterday, today, forever. And impeccability. That's where we stopped. So, does anyone have the outline? Okay, great. So you have the references there. And now we'll take our Bibles and we'll look at some references. And last time we asked what impeccability means. And I had a multiple choice question. It's a test. See if you can pass it. Does it mean you never show up late to work? You have impeccable timing. Does it mean that? Have you? Never mind. <laughs> Does it mean you're an iron feathered chicken? You can't be pecked pecking order okay <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> is it a place at the top of the pecking order hmm. is it an inability to sin perfect sinless which one do you think it is a b c or d b i'm hearing b okay i think we can all agree it's the last one it's an inability to sin perfect and sinless. It's from some Latin word that I don't know, okay? Peccability? I know it's a restaurant. i okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Picari, non picari that's another discussion in Reformation theology. That, But again, I don't, I'm not going to say much of Latin that I don't know, I never studied Latin. Alright, and this is a repeat for Darren and Window because they've been in Hebrews, and we really talked hard about this, about his impeccability. Um, some heated discussions, right? Back and forth as we're sitting here in a circle. Um, so could, his, could uh, Jesus' temptations have been real if he couldn't have sinned? Okay, I agree with you, sure. But what do you say to someone who thinks, okay, if he couldn't have sinned, he couldn't have really had real temptations? And I'll say this, or ask this. Does the Bible teach that he was tempted? Yes. In every way, as we are. Yeah, without sin. And that's the key reference for this idea of impeccability. Wendell? Yeah. 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 But I see, I foresee someone responding, saying, "Okay, I believe he didn't sin, but why make such a big deal about his temptations? Because I'm tempted and I fall into it, so that doesn't make me feel good at all. If I wasn't able to sin, then I'd be happy too, and I, you know, I would accept those statements. So again, could his temptations have been real if he couldn't have sinned? Now let's read a couple of statements about him being his sinlessness. Or uh, anyone have memorized Second Corinthians 5:21?" him. So yeah, clear, clear statement on his sinlessness. Thank you, Window. And then, so it teaches us that on one hand. On the other hand, it does teach us that he was tempted. And I'll read for you Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Because we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We do have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one that was tempted in all things, as she mentioned, as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So we'll bring it we'll bring it here. This is where we left off last time. Who faced the greater who faced temptation greater? The person who fell into it or the person who withstood it? Yeah, so that really gets to the bottom of our answer there. The person who did not fall into the temptation, but endured it to the very, very end, that's the person who felt the full weight of the temptation, isn't it? And that's where we have to leave it. The person who just falls into it, he only felt the beginning of the temptation, didn't he? Felt real strong, and then he, boom, fell. The person who endured to the end, the only person who's never fallen into temptation is, is Christ, but he felt that to the very end. Yes, Yes, something that was some real things that were tempting him in the process. Is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah, so he did face real temptations, and from that we do draw great encouragement, don't we? That he went through what we went through, but faced it to an even fuller extent than we do. And he did it without sin. And therefore is the perfect substitute for our sin. This is an amazing truth. And we could, you could have a whole Christology class just on this truth. And it all would revolve around that. But well, let's look at a couple other attributes. And then we'll close because Martin Luther has to figure out where he's going to nail his 95 theses. I'm telling you guys, he's coming. No one believes me. <laughs> so we looked at these many attributes here. Let's also look at his sovereignty. And what's our definition of sovereignty? If a kid, if your kid asked you, or for a kid in the church asked you, what sovereignty mean? Because we say you always, always say God's sovereign. What does that mean? Yeah, He's in control, absolute control. I always like to say God's in charge. Or, what He says goes. That, that that's, not, that's something a kid can understand, because the word sovereignty shouldn't be something that kids can't understand or people new in the faith can't understand. But yeah, He's in absolute control. But Jesus in absolute control? Colossians one seventeen, who wants to read that? Colossians one seventeen, before all things, all things hold together in him. Colossians 2.10. <laughs> Rulers and authorities are pretty powerful, right? We have to submit to them, right? Who's the head over them? Christ is. He's the head over all rule and authority. He's sovereign. Hebrews 1.3. All things, or He upholds all things by what of His power? By the word of His power. How did God create the world? Spoke it into existence, and by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. Right now, when and when we were studying Hebrews a couple weeks or a couple months ago, we had a pen, and we all tried to tell the pen to stand up. We tried several times, and it didn't stand up. So, if someone say, stand okay it falls down every time we say it and I won't keep repeating it but that's the idea Christ upholds all things by the word of his power so he is sovereign he's also loving Ephesians 3 in Paul's prayer for the Ephesians someone reads uh, Ephesians 3 17 through 19 <clears throat> Yeah, and the key line, key phrase being there, to know the love of Christ, this being one of our prayer requests, to know the love of Christ that surpasses what? All un- all understanding, all comprehension, all knowledge. And why is that important when you're in times of trial? Knowing the love of Christ? Yeah, because his love goes past the limits of our understanding. And our understanding is very limited. And often because of we're, we're limited in our understanding, when we're in the middle of the trial, we think there's no way out. Or we start thinking because we're in a trial that he's, God's mad at us, right? So we have all these lies to start believing. But understanding more and more the love of Christ and knowing that it's going to go past our comprehension and however much our intellect is telling us we're in deep trouble here and we're never going to get out, we have the love of Christ that surpasses that and overrides that. We can still experience his love. And in holiness. And we'll wrap up with this. Uh, Acts three. Fourteen to fifteen. What kind of what kind of person did they put to death on the cross? Was he, uh, was he uh, did he break the law? who did they put to death yeah so we'll read verse 14 and 15 amen so those are his attributes those are some of his attributes and what do all these attributes prove? Could any of these attributes be ascribed to just a mere man? So look at the list again. Remember this idea of incommunicable and communicable attributes? Which uh, which ones are incommunicable and which ones are communicable? First one, pre-existence and eternality. That's incommunicable. We don't share that with God. Omnipotence. We think we do, but we don't. Omniscience. We share that with God. We think we do, but we don't. Omnipresence. We wish we did, but we don't. Immutability. we need some pretty steady people, but nope, we're not unchangeable. Impeccability. No. Sovereignty. Okay, but there are a couple, at least in this list. Love. We're called to be loving, right? But do we have perfect love like Christ? Do we have love that surpasses all understanding like Christ? We're, we're called to mirror it, but no. And holiness and righteousness, we're called to mirror that too, aren't we? Yeah, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And to be holy because he is holy, we're called that. But who's perfectly holy? Who's perfectly righteous? Only Jesus. So all of these attributes pointing to the deity of Christ. That's why Jesus shares the, the honors of God. He's, all the worship due to God the Father is due to God the Son. And all the attributes that God the Father possesses, God the Son possesses, Jesus is God. This is proving his deity. Next week we'll do the names, and then we'll see how far we go after that. Um, any questions? No, not this week. Um, I mean, I recommend, I'm using a bunch of different systematic theologies for this. I've, I couldn't find just one that I wanted to use, so I just picked a bunch and I'm putting, kind of putting them all together. That's the, one I, yeah, that's the one we're gonna be reading, if, if I suggest. And if I suggest something else, I'll print it for you, that way. Because I know, every, who doesn't have Grudem? Wow, okay. <laughs> the Church of Grudem. And if not, you can use one in the church library. <laughs> See, G, uh, GBCT, Grudem Bible Church, Amber? Yep. All right. <laughs> it's like, well, we're stuck here, I guess. <laughs> Yeah, except after the last few articles he wrote on a certain website. Now people don't like him, but I still like him. So (laughs) what's that?